I think there are a couple of prayers that hardly ever, if ever, oh yeah, we're dismissing the kids. <laughs> and I know your prayer is one of these Sundays I'm going to remember to do that before they actually start getting up and going on their own. <laughs> All right. I think there's a, a couple of prayer requests that hardly ever cross our lips. One of those is, Lord, teach me patience. Now, there are we, probably are times in our lives when we pray, Lord, give me patience. But that's a whole lot different than actually praying, Lord, teach me patience. Another prayer request, and this is the subject matter that I want to talk about today out of our parable, our so-called parable out of Luke chapter 14, is humility. Some of us may say, Lord, give me humility, but rarely do we ever offer up the prayer, Lord, make me humble. Because in both of those situations of teaching us to be patient and making us humble, we're kind of fearful <laughs> of how God might answer that prayer in our lives, right? You know, it's like, I don't know if I really want to go through the crucible of what it really takes to be broken down and to be made humble. I'm not sure I really want to go through the difficulty of what it really takes to learn to be patient. Jesus used an occasion in Luke chapter 14 to teach some religious leaders about humility. And I'd love for you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 14. You're using one of our Black Pew Bibles. should be one right underneath the seat there in front of you. And this is on page 885 in those. This is kind of known as the, the banquet chapter in the Gospel of Luke because he strings together a, a theme related to banquets through Jesus going to a Sabbath banquet and doing some teaching and then out of there teaching about a large banquet that is to come and those who will actually respond to the invitation and those who won't. Let me just read through the first 12, uh, sorry, the first 14 verses of Luke chapter 14. Our focus today is going to be on verses 7 through 11. But you really can't pick up the impact or the value of what Jesus is trying to teach to us. You really can't understand it unless we put it in the whole context. So Jesus is actually here in the Gospel of Luke on his way to Jerusalem. So he's towards the end of his ministry time. He's not going to actually have the triumphal entry for several more chapters, but he's kind of set his face towards Jerusalem. He's making his way there. It says, on one Sabbath, when he went to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, they were watching him closely. So it's a Sabbath day. Can't work on this day. All the food would have been prepared before sundown on Friday. And he's invited to the home of, of one of the religious bigwigs, all the friends of the religious bigwigs are there, and they're keeping their eyes on Jesus because they want to find some fault with him where they can discredit him. He's under the microscope, you might say. And there in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. Some of your translations use the word dropsy. There was a man in front of him who had dropsy. This was a disease where Certain parts of your body, like your, your, your entire leg just might swell out where you could hardly even bend it or, or ankles or shoulders, whatever. Just parts of your body started to retain lots of water and it was very debilitating. We don't know how this man got here. 
We don't know if he just kind of wandered in off the street or if he was literally a plant by the Pharisees to see what Jesus was going to do. You see, it was against rabbinic teaching. Not necessarily anything you'd find in the Old Testament, but as they took the Old Testament and tried to explain it and put it into everyday words, the rabbis had concluded that to heal somebody on the Sabbath was to work, so therefore it was forbidden to heal people on the Sabbath. Can you imagine that? What, 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 a, what a caution to us to, to be careful about how convinced we are that our understanding of what righteousness is in the eyes of God is. We really need to be open to the Holy Spirit's leadership. So here's Jesus. He's in the midst of the watchdogs. There's a sick man in front of him. And Jesus goes on the offensive in verse 3. In, a, in response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. I mean, they're, they're thinking, you know, obviously Jesus is there. People are looking in the windows, this and that. Other you know what? If we say yes, we think the answer is yes. That's, it's illegal to heal on the Sabbath. But if we say no, boy, that really makes us look like hateful, heartless kind of thing. You know, so they just keep their mouth shut. <laughs> you know, they don't know what to say. They don't want to look bad, but they know what they think, and so they just keep their mouth shut. They took the fifth. So he takes the man, he healed him, and he sent him away. And then he turns and he says to them, which of you whose son or ox falls into a well... And there were lots of open wells in the days of Jesus. They didn't have fences around them. There was no, there was no uh, you know, safety regulations like you've got to have a fence around your pool. There wasn't any of that. There was just open wells. they dig them down. Some of these were fairly deep, 10, 15, 20 feet straight down to where they could get water. So which one of you, if you had a son or an ox who falls into a well, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? To this, they could find no answer. So what Jesus is pointing out to them says, you guys will hold on to the law as long as it applies to somebody else, but when it really matters to you, you can come up with a different type of interpretation. That's all free, because that's really not a part of what we're talking about this morning. So on the heels of that, Jesus tells a parable that it's really kind of not a parable, and we'll deal with that in a minute. He says, so so he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they would choose the best places for themselves. And, and what he gives here is not a story, but it really seems like advice. It's like a life counsel. It says, when you were invited by someone to a wedding banquet, really he meant a big feast in general, including what he was at that day. When you were invited by someone to a party, to a wedding banquet, don't recline at the best place. Because a more distinguished person than you might have been invited by your host. And then the one, who invited you, um, the one who invited both of you may come and say to you, give up your place, and then humiliation, you will proceed to take the lowest place. So here's the dynamic that Jesus is talking about. That the Jews actually had a very strict kind of custom about how this all worked. And most gatherings like this, wedding parties, whatever, the, the, the room was kind of set up in a U-shape, right? So there were, there were couches. They were really more like pillows along the ground. And usually three people at a time would recline at them. 
they usually reclined on their left elbow. They ate with their right hand, right? And, and, and so at the tip of the U was the place of honor. And so on this, on this cushion, there would be three people, and the one who sat in the middle was numero uno. The one who sat in front of them was numero dos, the second most important. The one who sat behind them on their left elbow, kind of facing them, he was the third most important person. And then the pillow to the, the, the cushion to their left was the second most important. And then the one to their right was the third. And then the second one on the left was the fourth and fifth. And it was, it, there was a very strict pecking order about how this all worked. So Jesus has got this imagery. You show up at the party. You don't know who's been invited. They didn't have placards like in our weddings, right? You know, you pick up your placard off the table and you go find your thing. And you, you know, they didn't have any of that. So you come in and you're looking around and say, I'm more important than him, 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 and him. You know what? I'm going to sit at the second cushion. You know, and then all of a sudden you get to the end and the VIP who's late arriving shows up and they need to be where you are. So the guy gets up and the only seat left is the crappiest seat in the back. Right, with a guy who's six foot ten sitting in front of you, and you can't see the screen. You know, that, you know, it's that kind of imagery that Jesus is using. All right, he says, but when you are invited, go and recline in the lowest place, so that when the one who invited you comes, he will say to you, "Friend, move up higher." You will then be honored in the presence of all the other guests, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. He also said to the one who invited him, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, I don't think in the latter part of this that Jesus is trying to teach that you can't invite your family over for dinner, all right? Some of you would prefer not to invite your families over for dinner, and you're looking for biblical justification. You can't use this text for that, all right? You know, but it, it is along the idea that you know what, I'm, I'm going to try to network and work my way up the either career ladder or work my way up the social ladder by inviting over the people who are important, and then they're going to invite me back and all that kind of stuff. He said, none of that. So here's the context So we want to look at. First of all, this doesn't sound like a parable, does it? I mean, parables are stories. That's what we usually think, right? A sower went out to sow, you know, and so it's just a story. It's, it's clearly a picture, an experience from everyday life. You know, a master prepared to go out on a long journey, so he called in his servants and divided up his business interests. You know, that happened all the time. You know, somebody would lose a sheep, and so they, you know, and so they, would, they would put them all away safely, and they go out and they search for them. That happened all the time. But they were stories out of everyday life that communicated spiritual truths to us. This isn't just a story. This is something that Jesus just saw unfold before his eyes. He shows up for the Sabbath banquet, and he, and he just kind of standing off to the side, or maybe he took the cushion in the back, <laughs> you know, farthest to the, the far end of the U, 
And he's just watching, and all these guys are trying to elbow their way in and, you know, looking around and say, where do I fit? Well, I'm number four, you know. And, 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 and then when they sit down to recline, Jesus teaches them. And it's clearly, I think, the reason why Luke calls this a parable is because he's looking at a real-life experience from which Jesus gives great counsel, but that counsel isn't supposed to just be limited to our understanding of how to live our lives Monday through Saturday. Or Monday, even Sunday through Saturday. It's not, not designed just the way we live ourselves, our ways here in this temporal world, but it also conveys truth that affect the way that we live now for all eternity. And that's really the point of parables. They take everyday experience, real life world stuff, and teach us truths that show us how to be ready for eternity. Jesus uses this experience of these, these religious leaders who are so confident that they've got the truth down, that they're ready to examine Christ to see if He messes up in their presence, says something they can condemn Him for, and then he turns around and takes what they were just doing and say, you know what, if you want to be ready for eternity. I mean, this isn't bad advice for just how to live on a regular. Next time you go to a banquet and you don't want to get humiliated, go sit in the back and they'll move you forward, you know. That's not bad advice, but that's not really the point. The point is, the one who exalts himself, ultimately he's going to be humbled. Not just in this party, but for eternity. And the one who humbles himself, the Lord will exalt him up. In fact, actually, Jesus here is really teaching through both of these truths that he points out, that of what seat to take and who you're supposed to invite. He's actually teaching attitudes about our attitude towards God and then our attitude towards others. So here in this banquet, he's looking at what's going on. He's looking at the guest list of who's there. He's looking at who's trying to jockey for certain seats. And he uses that experience to teach them about what their attitude towards God ought to be and what their attitude toward other people ought to be. And that's why Luke calls it a parable. Because it's much more than just the surface. It's stuff that gets to the inside about who we are as we go forward. So here in the midst of this hostile environment, where they're out to find some way for Jesus to mess up, Jesus teaches them about humility. So, so why is this important for us? Why is this concept of humility important for us? You know, I, I, first of all, I thought, well, how in the world am I going to define humility for us? I mean, if we're supposed to be humble, what does it mean to be humble? You know, and, and I'm kind of reluctant to define it because it's one of those things that's really hard to. And everything you kind of include, you know, you, if you include everything, you're not going to get anything out of it, right? Because it's just such a big topic, right? And yet if you back, you know, that kind of, but I, I want to give you a stab at it, all right? Just, just something to think about. And I'm going to read a fairly lengthy quote from really probably one of the most thoughtful authors the, the church has ever had. It's a guy by the name of A.W. Tozer. I'm going to read a lengthy quote and then pull out a piece in the middle that I think helped really define humility as Jesus is defining it in our text today. Here's this quote from A.W. Tozer. The meek man, let me use the word the humble man, is not a human mouse with a sense of his own inferiority. In other words, the meek man is not somebody who has an inferiority complex. Rather, he may be, in his moral life, bold as a lion and as strong as Samson. 
but he stopped being fooled by himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his life. He knows he is as weak and as helpless as God has already declared him to be. But paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is in the God's sight more important than angels. Let me unpack that a little bit because that's, that's, a, that's a mouthful, right, that he's talking about in there. But he, here, here's, here's, here's the way I want you to understand humility in the context of why Jesus is lifting it up and its importance in our journey before God. Why, why is it that those who humble themselves are exalted and why those who exalt themselves, who refuse to be humbled, how is it that in the long run they land up actually being humbled? And what Jesus is, what, what the way A.W. Tozer puts that, and I think it's very helpful for us, we get to a point where we recognize that we've been fooling ourselves. That somehow or another that we can be good enough and committed enough and, 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 and righteous enough, etc., on our own to somehow warrant the favor of God. We stop fooling ourselves. And with that, we accept God's understanding, God's declaration already that none of us that are good enough in and of our, ourselves that we actually are weak and helpless. There's nothing that we can do to earn the favor of God on our own. And that's what the Scripture talks about as humility. This isn't necessarily the person who's the wallflower on the wall and all that kind of stuff. This is the person who, who deep down, sincerely, in who they are, recognize and accept the fact that they, they, they have nothing to offer to God in and of themselves that would please Him. That they recognize that God has already declared that all who sin fall short of His glory. And yet in the midst of that, they appreciate the fact that God values enough that we're more important than the angels and He sent His Son to be our Savior. In our Lord. That that's really is what humility is about. Now you can use all kinds of examples about saying, you know, I, I read some stuff this week and one guy was talking about this this famous poet. I mean, publications around the world were clamoring to get their hands on the new poems that this guy was writing. And every time he would write a poem and send it off to a publisher, this is back before email and stuff. Send it off with, he always included a return envelope with a stamp on it in case they rejected his work. You know, I, I, I get that kind of, but that's not what the scripture's talking about in humility. It's, that's not, you know, it's, it's not, it, there's aspects of that to flow out in the way we relate to everybody, other people, that there's nobody who's beneath us, there's nobody who's above us. All, I understand all of that, but when it boils down to what Jesus is talking about in terms of our relationship to God, the attitude that needs to prevail is, is humility. And it's a humility that says, I accept what God said about me. And I agree with it because I see it in myself. That there's nothing that I can do to be good enough in the eyes of God. And with that, I need a Savior and I need a Lord. I need somebody not only to redeem me, I need somebody to guide my life where my life can actually have impact and value that matters for all eternity. I, th I think it's helpful 
at least it is for me, to, to take this concept of humility and, and start to ask the question, why in the world is it therefore that important? And I, I want to return to a couple of words that we used last week that were... We did, you know, last week we did the parable of what I call the midnight cry of the bridegroom who's been, uh, you know, delayed at the, at, the, at the wedding celebration at the bride's home and they finally come back through the village, you know, and it's late at night and some of the young women who have prepared for the party don't have enough oil. And, we, and, they, and, and it, we've talked about what it meant to be ready for the coming of Christ and the two words that we used are faith and faithfulness. Those are two filters that we can look at. I want to take this concept now of humility and apply it to how is it that humility helps us to be people who are faith, people of faith, people of faithfulness, therefore we're ready for the coming of Christ which leads to all eternity. Did you get that? I'm not sure I did. I hope you did. All right. So there, there is a connection kind of all the way through there. You know, and Let's take this concept of humility and apply it to faith. And, and, and I want to apply it to the concept of saving faith. This, this reaching out, crying out to God for salvation. This, this accepting the forgiveness that is in Christ and recognizing that we need our Savior. You know, how does humility fit in there? You know, it's interesting that in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, there's a scripture that teaches, says that our righteousness is like filthy rags in the sight of God. Now the implication there, therefore is that the very best that we have to do in generosity and sacrifice and commitment and, and mercy and compassion, all stuff, you, you raise that up to the highest level and in God's sight, it doesn't look any better than that old t-shirt that you won't wear anymore that you've been using in the garage that's got oil on it from all the times you pulled the dipstick out of the tractor, you know, and the stuff that you, you know, it's, it's, it, you know, it's, it's a crappy old rag. Can you say that word in the pulpit? I don't know. Can you guys delete that out of the audio or whatever? And, you know, it's just, you know, it's, it's, a, it's the kind of thing you use to clean up. You know, it's filthy. It's just, it's, it's worthless. So that's the way. I, let's try to boil this down. It really takes humility to accept that as a fact. Let's apply this. You know, it always helps for me to keep kind of pushing. What does this really mean? Without faith in Christ, without her motivation being her love for Christ and what Christ had done for her in terms of being her Savior and her Lord, every single thing that Mother Teresa did in the slums would have looked like filthy rags in the sight of God. All the sacrifices, all the people she cared for, all, all, all the diseases that she exposed herself to, all the stuff that she gave away when she really needed it for herself and that kind of stuff, all that stuff without faith in Christ, God says, you know what? As, as much as you pile that together, it doesn't look any better than the oily, greasy t-shirt that you threw out in the garage a year ago. It takes a lot of humility to accept that fact. Because I don't know about you, but I'd certainly say Mother Teresa is just a little bit better person than me. Maybe you're above her, I don't know, but, but I, I don't quite measure up. 
And the fact is, Mother Teresa would tell you that none of that stuff mattered in the eyes of God if it didn't come from a heart full of faith because she was humble enough to accept the Savior. She'd accepted her, she'd accepted God's explanation of who she was, his declaration about who she is. She had stopped fooling herself and embraced, and it was all that motivation. That's humility. Or, make it, bring the example a little closer to home. Probably, maybe a little bit more of some of our heroes. You know, think about Billy Graham, the great American evangelist, right? This guy who's led hundreds of thousands of people to Christ across the world. The guy who, who, who went into the, the Oval Office or into the personal residence of the president on the evenings before wars started and prayed with them. This guy who, you know, at the top of everything that he done, everything he did, every stadium that he filled, all of it would look like filthy rags in the eyes of God if it wasn't generated from the fact that he had committed his life to Christ in faith. That takes humility. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about humility. The very best stuff that you and I have to do, even if we could manage to be twice as generous and giving and sacrificial and admirable as Mother Teresa, all of it still comes up short in the eyes of God because our righteousness, our very best. And, and you and I are never going to be a pl- in a place where we reach out and we cling to a Savior if we don't reach a point of humility. And that's where this stop fooling ourselves. You know what? I'm a lot better than the people down, who live down the street and I haven't gone to jail. I haven't gotten a ticket in five years. And this, and that. We've got all these things that we can start adding up on our balance sheet and say, I'm a pretty... All, all that stuff. It doesn't matter when it comes to whether you are you fit for the kingdom or not. And in the spirit of humility, we stop fooling ourselves and we accept the gift that God has given us in Jesus Christ. That's a powerful thing. And, and, you know, and sometimes I think today that that's kind of missing in our spiritual journeys. With way too many pieces, it, 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 the way faith comes into people's lives is, well, you know, I really like my life, except I seem to be missing a little bit. Maybe I'll go find a little God to kind of add some extra peace and joy in the midst of all of that. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. If... if if Jesus is a part of the way that we manipulate our surroundings to somehow or another we can be living the life that we want, we've missed the whole boat. Because the whole point of humility is that the life we want comes up way, 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 way short of qualifying us to get into heaven. All right, I'm running out of time. I've got to keep moving. What about faithfulness? What about faithfulness? How is it that humility fits in with faithfulness? I, I, I really think that humility, understanding that we need a Savior, and with that, the very best of our wisdom is so inadequate that we need a Lord, somebody to guide us, that humility is essential to actually living a life of obedience, which is what the Scripture describes as living a life where we love Jesus. Jesus said, those who love me will obey my commands. You know, boy, there's a lot of different passages of Scripture we could use in this. And, you know, there's one where, 
where in Philippians, Paul writes to the church at Philippi and he says, with humility of mind, let each one of you regard one another as more important than himself. Not looking merely for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. You're not going to sustain that without humility. Without, without a sense of, I can't believe what God has done for me. I'm willing to do anything in his name for other people. That's just not going to come. Somewhere along the line, you're going to say, you know what, they don't deserve it. I'm better than them. <laughs> and you're going to stop. And it's interesting, you know, in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, he's talking to the young men, and he's saying, you know what, you need to put on a spirit of humility. You know, and just, just let God work this out. Because, and then he gets to a point where he says, because you just need to cast all your cares, cast all your anxiety upon him. And, and what Jesus is trying to say, these young men think they can change the world, right? It's not a bad attitude. I'm not condemning that. But the idea with that is I want to take it into my own hands. And Peter says, you know what? You need to cast your cares upon the Lord. Trust in him. Let him be Lord and then guide. Great stuff will happen. But if you're not humble enough to do that, <laughs> all you're going to do is create a mess. Some of us have been there and done that. Somewhere along the line, when we get to a place where we're saying, I deserve better, and therefore, I don't have to do this anymore the way God has said I'm supposed to treat this person. We're, we're off the tracks. See, the way you and I allocate our time, our money, our priorities, uh, the way we serve, the way we vote, the way we do everything is all governed by humility if it's really being done in the eyes of God. So let me ask another question. So we understand why humility is important. So how do you stay humble? Maybe I shouldn't make that a rhetorical question, but we're kind of running out of time because I will. Because it's interesting, how do you stay humble? Right? Because humility is one of those things where as soon as you're aware of the fact that you've achieved it, you're probably losing it. Right? You get to a place, you know, oh boy, look how I'm And then it's like, oh, now I'm getting pride. You know, it just kind of slips away, you know? And let me give you a couple of things. First thing is, insincerity and ingenuineness. You know, if, if, if we slow down and even compare ourselves to the best who are around us, it can be humbling. Because somewhere along the line, there's somebody there who's better at it than you are. Whether they sing better, whether they got more money than you, somewhere along the line, there's always a bish, bigger fish in the pond than you. I remember reading a story about Thomas Shepard. He was the founder of Harvard University. And believe it or not, way back when, Harvard was actually started as a religious school. It was started as a Baptist school. So there was an occasion where he had written a sermon that he had submitted to the local paper to be published in the paper for everybody to read. And they published his paper. On the very same, in the very same edition, the sermon of a friend of his who served in another church across the city, not, not nearly as famous as Dr. Shepard, his sermon was also published. And Dr. Shepard was in his library late in the evening, just face on the ground, overwhelmed because the other guy's sermon was just so much better than his. No matter how significant we get up to chance, there's always somebody who's better than us. So some ways, look around. Those who, who really are impressed, they will bring humility to you. Now there's places where that can really falter, right? So ultimately, the place to look is to compare yourself to Christ. Just compare yourself 
to the person of God that became one of us that we know as Jesus Christ. That's what the Scriptures are part about. He holds us up. This is what it is to live a life that's fully pleasing to God so that you're worthy of eternity. Compare yourself to that. Let me give you a couple examples of people who did that. Some of you love the hymn Amazing Grace, right? It was written by a guy by the name of John Newton. Some of you might not remember that John Newton at one point in time in his journey was a slave owner and a slave trader. And he came to know Christ. He became a powerful evangelist. God used him in many places around the world. When he was in the last stages of his life, the last few weeks to a month of his life, he was talking to one of his friends and and, and he was writing to him and he said, you know, when you get to heaven, if you're looking for me, which I hope you will, he said, you'll find me sitting at the feet of the thief who was on the cross next to Jesus. Because I'm not going to be worthy to sit at the feet of Jesus. There's a sense in which that humility needs to pervade, right? There was a, there's a, a very famous theologian, I'm, that's the wrong word to use, a, a, a highly prized theologian by the name of Dr. F.B. Meyer. He wrote lots of different works and he really became recognized and, and, and appreciated and, and applauded for his, his righteousness and his sanctity and those kinds of things. And when he was at the end of his journey, you know, and, and a friend wrote to him and trying to encourage him as he was in the last couple of weeks of his life, telling him about just what an impact that he had had on others and how he's such a model for everybody else and all that kind of stuff, you know, and, and, and that he was, a, he was a beacon of sanctity kind of idea. He wrote to his friends, he said, he said, boy, you know, I don't know about all of that. He said, but I, I hope I can just creep into heaven quietly because he didn't really feel like he deserved to go through the front doors with a lot of fanfare. I said, I hope they'll just let me kind of creep in the back window. They, they left open for a crack. And I, that idea of comparing ourselves to the perfection and the grace of God, those two things can bring a lot of humility to us. And those things are pivotal to our spiritual journey because everything about our spiritual lives rests and starts on the humble acceptance of the fact that we need a God. We need a Savior and we need a Lord. And if there's a crack in that foundation, we's in trouble. We's in trouble. So here's my question for all of us this morning. You have to answer for yourself. When you, walk, when you walked in this morning... Which chair were you headed for? Which, were you headed for one of the good seats? <laughs> or were you headed for the low seats, letting God move you forward? Why are you guys laughing? Up front, you know, whatever. I didn't mean your literal seats, okay? I meant spiritually in your own hearts. Where, where, where were you? You know, some of us could be walking across the parking lot this morning and say, look at me. It's a beautiful Sunday morning, or a rare summer Sunday, and I'm going to church. God must be impressed, right? Yeah. <sighs> what was your attitude as you walked in the door this morning? Which seat in the kingdom were you headed for? Let's pray together. God, lots for us to learn today. Thanks for the way that Jesus just took a real-life event, and he taught these leaders, whether they got it or not, about humility, 
and about generosity to others. God, don't let the life lessons end for us today. Keep revealing to us all the ways that we need you and all the ways that you can be ours. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.